The following is a message by Rev. C.J. Dendulk at Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. It is always a privilege to come back to Westminster Seminary. Um, I am very busy um, as a pastor, but I'm thankful for uh, very godly elders who allowed me to come here to Westminster Seminary, and they also want me to extend greetings to all of you. They love Westminster Seminary as they've come to learn about this great institution and also appreciate the blessings that uh, we at Trinity Christian Reformed Church have because of Westminster Seminary. As Derek mentioned, um, Zach Olson is a wonderful son of our congregation. We are so thankful that he uh, received a, a, a fantastic and a great education here at Westminster, and I know from conversations with Zach um, how profoundly thankful he is for what he learned here at Westminster Seminary. I remember when Zach struggled after his first year whether he'd even come back to Westminster. Came back to a chapel just like this, heard Dr. Godfrey preach. He called me up right out of chapel and said, Pastor CJ, thank you for helping me, encourage me to stay to Westminster. I know with great certainty I'm right where God wants me to be, and I'm really, really thankful that um, Not only did Zach receive a great education, but as a pastor and other elders, the confidence we have that God is working at Westminster Seminary and continues to provide it with great faculty, great students, and a host of other people behind the scenes that make this seminary what it is. We've also been blessed to have Tyler Wagonmaker. I don't know if some of you remember Reverend Tyler Wagonmaker, served as a summer intern in our church, and that kind of happened in God's amazing providence. We weren't seeking summer interns. I'd never even thought about having summer interns because I still consider myself learning in a first charge at a church. Um, Tyler was a huge blessing, and we still are um, reaping the fruits of Tyler's service with us years ago and graduate here of the seminary and serving well at a a Beaver Dam Christian Reformed Church in western Michigan. And then we had a guy named John Bushnell. He called up and uh, heard about Trinity CRC and wanted to do a summer internship. So we got to meet John, and we had him one summer, and then we had him another summer. Some guys just take longer to learn things. (laughs) So we give them do-overs. And the second time John came, he uh, was married, and we found that things went much better, and uh, are really thankful to God for Kelly and all that he, she has done to uh, help John. We love John Bushnell and Kelly, and we're very thankful that uh, they're a big part of Westminster Seminary here as well. And then after John Bushnell, well, we had this guy named Derek Bukema. And uh, our congregation has just fallen in love, not only with the Bushnells, but now also Derek Bukema. Amazing God's providence. We never tire of learning it and experiencing it. I uh, didn't know Derek Bukema. I actually met Derek in Chicago for the first time. We were having a Westminster promotional get-together in Chicago. And um, this real tall guy, I don't know, six five or so, came up. And he was struggling at the time about where God's will is for him to go to seminary. And, of course, I said... There's really one seminary you need to go if you want to be very serious about trusting God and his word and having the confidence in the gospel. Go to Westminster Seminary, California. And um, I'm really thankful, Derek, that God led you there. And then also an internship at Sparta. And it turns out that 33 years before Derek came to this little church in Sparta, his mother was a teenager 
and she got involved in a, uh, a, a mission program called SWIM, Summer Workshops and Mission, and she came to Sparta Church, a little mission church, 33 years before, and now her son serving as an intern at Sparta. So it was uh, marvelous providence. Last 4th of July was a Sunday, a Lord's Day. Dr. Dirk Berksma, as you know, is Derek's grandfather. So we had the privilege to have Dr. Dirk Berksma preach in the morning. And then Derek preached, uh, was that your first sermon, Derek, or second? Second sermon. So what a great Sunday. And uh, it was so good, we almost had fireworks afterwards. But um, we didn't, so we're okay. Um, Since Derek told the story, now I'm going to tell a story. Um, Derek, I don't know, it's just God is blessed with many gifts and talents, and once you get to know Derek, there's nobody like him, it seems. And um, my wife just had gone to the hairdresser in our little town of Sparta, and she said, hey, do you still have that intern guy around? And she said, no, he went back to seminary. She says, well, we remember him when he came, because Derek had to get a haircut. Remember this, Derek? And you asked me where to get a haircut, and I said, well, go to the place where my wife goes, and he did, but apparently, Derek, now I've learned this, um, they didn't have an appointment for him, or there, it was not time, and so they apologized, and Derek just kind of looked and uh, was very kind and said, okay, goodbye, everybody. I hope you all have a good day to everybody there. And as he left, well, this lady that runs the hairdressing place in our town said, when he left, we either said, he's either drunk <laughs> or he's just a really, really nice guy, so... We'll go with the latter. He's a really, really nice guy. That's the kind of impression Derek Bukema has. And really, I, uh, I'm really thankful to be here. And I know a big part of it is God's providence working through, through Derek to uh, come here. My topic um, for today and tomorrow in our chapel is uh, called Going Pastoral. And I just want to make a confession um, off the bat. I'm still learning how to do these title things. It's really a challenge for me, these titles. Um, and at the last minute I said, well, let's just go pastoral. And um, some of that is because there's so much of this talk like going green. It's in Michigan. It's, uh, I'm sure, in California. Everybody's going green. And as you and I know with fads, this will probably be for around for a while. And then something else, going blue or something else will probably come in and come and go. But going pastoral, um, I really hope and pray that as you're at Westminster, you're just going to be impressed from the scriptures. It's not something you just come and go. It's not a fad. It is a serious, divine, lifetime call to be a privileged as a pastor uh, and under shepherd, under the chief and good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, going pastoral. And I hope and pray that in our chapel times today and tomorrow and our times together, God will use me to help encourage you as you are praying and planning and studying and preparing many of you to be pastors in the church or to follow God's calling in some other way to help shepherd and care and tend for God's sheep and for his lambs um, in his church. So that by way of introduction is what I'm aiming at at going pastoral. If you have your Bibles, will you uh, turn with me to the gospel according to John? Chapter 21, John 21, and we'll begin reading at verse 1 of John 21. One of the things I'm thankful for of many that I learned at Westminster was Dr. Dirk Berksma was our first preaching prof. 
And um, I remember just being so impressed. Whenever he would start to read the Bible, he would say, now what you're about to hear is the very word of God. And it's made a lifetime pastoral impression on me. So what you're about to hear is the very word of God. John 21, beginning at verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night... They caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did... They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, 
you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple who Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. May the Holy Spirit now bless the word of God to our lives now and forever. In seminary, you uh, obviously do a lot of reading and studying, and you're going to be asked many questions. Questions about theology, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of man, of Christology, salvation, eschatology, practical theology, historical theology, and so forth. In time, in God's providence, you'll also be um, experiencing ordination exams. And many questions will be presented to you to give, to give you an opportunity to account of what you have learned and what you know. I've gone through that. I've participated also in giving exams. And I've uh, noticed that rarely is the question that Jesus is asking here of Peter ever asked in theological ordination exams. And I hope and pray that that changes because it is, I believe, one of the most important questions that Jesus searches our own hearts, especially the hearts of his servants who will pastor churches and shepherd the flock of the Lord Jesus. And the question is, do you love Jesus? Jesus Asked Peter, first of all, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And as you've studied this text before, there's different interpretations of what is Jesus referring to about these or more than these. Do you love me more than this fishing equipment and fishing business? Or do you love me more than these disciples and friends and companions? But most likely, it is... Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Because in context, you remember, there was a time when Simon, which was uh, a veiled pastoral way that Jesus is bringing about his own weakness apart from Jesus helping him. There was a time when Peter, you know, was very self-confident and sure that he would not deny Jesus Even if all the other ones would be unfaithful, not Peter. He was 
prepared and willing to suffer, even die for Jesus. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? I believe there's also a reference again, as so common throughout the gospel according to John, that a reference to the deity of Christ. Do you love me more than these? He's asking a question. Do you love me more really than anything else? And we know there is only one being whom we're to love above all. That is the Lord our God. And there's no inconsistency with loving Jesus more than anything else and inconsistency with loving God because throughout John, it's one of the main purposes of this book is to believe and know that Jesus is God. The word become flesh who had his dwelling amongst us and revealed his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Do you truly love me? And as you know, there's a different uh, usage of the Greek words for love. The word that Jesus is using is the 100% kind of love. And Peter is responding back with a 60% kind of phileo love. And I'm not so sure how much to really stress on that because sometimes those words are used interchangeably elsewhere. But I am sure that the heart of it all is the question of, do you love Jesus? What is your motive behind your seminary studies, behind your lectures, your writing of books, your going into the ministry? Do you do what you do day in and day out because you love Jesus, knowing that he first loved you? We read here that the third time uh, Jesus asked Peter, Peter was hurt. And he's hurt, obviously, because he is painfully reminded of his denials of Jesus three times. And some people might think, this, this isn't very kind to publicly bring out a reminder of Peter's failures But really, it is kind. Jesus is not only reminding Peter of his love for him, of his grace, his forgiveness. He's reinstating him. He's restoring him. But he's doing it in a public way. Can you imagine some of these other disciples? They're so much like you and me. We might be thinking, like, boy, Peter really blew it. What else is lurking in his heart? Is he really, truly a, a real disciple or not? And in the kindness of the good shepherd, he's publicly bringing this out of Peter because he's not only going to forgive him, because it would be something if Jesus said, Peter, okay, I forgive you. You're my disciple. Go back to fishing, and uh, I'll always love you. That would be gracious enough. But Jesus doesn't say that, does he? After he asked him, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. In fact... Isn't it remarkable how he also, again, showing the deity of Christ, refers to the omniscience of Jesus? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That is so comforting and so reassuring because it reminds us that Jesus knows everything about not only Peter, but about you and me. He knows all that's decent and good by his grace. He also knows all of our failures and all of our sins that he died for, that he experienced the wrath of God the Father for, and yet he still loves you and loves me. It's not like you have to worry about somewhere in the future 
if Jesus is going to say, what, you did that? Oh, that changes everything now in our relationship. No, Lord, you know all things. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. And tender and shepherd and take care of my lambs. Isn't that ginormous grace? It's one thing to forgive sins, but then to give him this awesome responsibility to feed and to care for his sheep. The sheep that Jesus loves, that belong to him, that he died for, that he's the good shepherd for. It's amazing. Amazing grace. And so as you hear the text... May the Holy Spirit help us every day when we go to studies, when we go to preach, we make sermons, we visit people, we teach little children, we go to the jails, we write books, present lectures. May we constantly be hearing that question of Jesus, do you love me? And may we also experience in increasing measures, just a profound, growing love by the Holy Spirit in our own life for Jesus who first loved us. One of the things I hope that you as seminarians do, and I'm really glad Westminster's doing this now. I understand there is an option in the practical theology courses for doing Crossroad Bible Institute uh, discipling. Isn't that correct? Um, I really hope you get involved in prison ministry for several reasons. It's a Matthew 25 kind of thing. When I was in prison, you came and you visited me, said Jesus. He takes it very personally. When I was in Westminster Seminary back in uh, 1987, I uh, was asked to do something way out of my comfort zone. I had never even been to a jail or to a prison. And uh, about five, six hours north of here is Corcoran, California. There's a maximum security prison up there. There was a chaplain, Chaplain Owens, read uh, of the Reformed faith and became very Reformed in his theology, contacted Westminster Seminary, said, hey, can you send up some students here? we got some inmates here. They're grasping the Reformed faith. They're hungering and thirsting for it. Can you have them come up and do chapels? And in God's providence, I... Uh, decided I would give this a try. And to be honest with you, I was very, very nervous, frightened. When I saw the the, uh, penitentiary there, the huge fence, barbed wires, guard towers, saw how mammoth it was, my fear was growing. And I had my Bible at my side. I remember going in there, and you go through all the security clearance. And I remember them saying, now listen, you're signing this paper, We want you to know that if some gangs get into a fight, they take you hostage. We do not go in there and negotiate for you. You go in on your own risk. And we're like, okay. And as I got in there, we're going into the yard. There's guys pumping weights. They're just humongous, buff, scary-looking guys. And I'm walking through there, and I'm praying, Lord, please protect me. Please help me. Please help me. And this huge Hispanic guy, bandana, glasses, just he came right up to me, face to face, and he says, do you believe in sovereign grace? <laughs> like, God, thank you. He says, come on over here, brother, I'll show you where we meet. And we went behind a steel door, and there's like 20, 30 guys there waiting for us, praying for us to come and bring the word. Uh, Dion, I don't know, remember Dion? He was one of them there, and later on he became a professor here of Greek, I believe, at Westminster uh, Seminary. Um, 
Since that time, I've made a promise to God that if he gives me health and strength, wherever I am, I'll always be involved somewhere in some kind of jail ministry, prison ministry. What a way to learn how to preach as we continue to improve and do better at preaching. Because when you're in the jail, it's way different than the seminary. Seminary is great. You need to get the nuts and bolts, the tools and training. You get in the jail, they have no problem interrupting you going, what did you say? Did you say Jesus was God? Where is that in the Bible? And you have to learn to uh, cry out to Jesus and cry out to the Holy Spirit to give the words at the time and help build up God's sheep that are in the jail because there's Muslims in there and they're beating up on Christians all the time and they need to be reinforced from the scriptures. Yes, Jesus is God. I'll be happy to show you. And everything that you read in the Bible, it's in living color in the jail. And those of you who know the Heidelberg Catechism... This is another reason why jail ministry is so great. What three things you got to know in order to enjoy the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ who loves you? you got to know how great your sin and misery is, right? And you're growing in that all the time. And you got to know how you're delivered from that through Jesus Christ and how you live a life of thankful service. I'll tell you what, you get in the jail, they got that number one thing down far greater than a lot of people in the church like ourselves. They know how great their sin and misery is. And what a joy. I have seen visible manifestations of inmates sobbing when you explain justification by faith, which I learned so well here at Westminster, especially the active and passive obedience of Christ. I am eternally grateful for that. And to be able to explain that and watch guys who have been for so long under this burden of guilt and frustration and failure to hear how Christ has done it all. And it's by God's grace. And they just, you can just see the burden just lifted off. It is pure joy to preach the gospel in these jails, and they shape you and you form you. Now I'll say one last thing. Hopefully I'll get to the point why I'm telling you this. There was an inmate years ago in Michigan, and he said, hey, I'm going to be sentenced. Can you do me a favor? And I said, well, what is that? He says, can you go pick up my mother? She's in a wheelchair. She can't drive. And I just want to see my mom before I go off to a prison for the rest of my life. I said, well, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So I don't know anything else about this man or his family. And we went down to downtown Grand Rapids, myself and another guy from church, and we introduced ourselves, told her how we go to the jail, and that your son requested that we pick you up and take you to the courthouse so your son can see you before he gets sentenced and sent off to prison. And she went, and we brought her there. And if you've ever been in a courtroom, that's another good experience to have because it really helps you think about the divine judgment day for all people and why we need Jesus Christ as our advocate. Sitting there in the courtroom and then of course as you know they have several cases and we're sitting with this inmate's mother and all of a sudden his case comes up and they read publicly what he had done. Embarrassing. Embarrassing to such a degree that people were actually snickering and laughing And they turned around, I remember, and they looked at us to kind of like, is that his family? And in my sinful shame, I kind of wanted to go like, time out. We are not really related to him. We're just here bringing his mother. And I wanted to distance myself. You know what happened? God convicted me and said something to the effect like, CJ, if it weren't for the grace of God, 
you'd be right there too. And the very Jesus who saved me is not ashamed to call me his brother. And if you think that's embarrassing, what do you think your sin looks like before a holy God and all his holy angels? Yet, while you were still a sinner, Christ Jesus loved you. God the Father loved you and sent his Son to live a perfect, holy, righteous, sinless life for you and died on the cross to shed his blood to atone for all your sins and he's not ashamed to own you and claim you as one of his children. And the more we are reminded that Christ loves us so much that he died for us to glorify God, our Heavenly Father, and all of his perfections of his holiness and justice as well as his mercy, grace, and love to undeserving sinners like us. Then when you hear Jesus say to you, do you really love me? Because I love you. And I saved you. And I forgive you. Not only of all your sins, but even your sinful nature that you struggle with. And as we hear that more and more, the Holy Spirit fuels our motivation to say, yes, Lord. I wish I could say I love you with a perfect love, but I join with Peter, and I'm hurt too because it's a Romans 7 thing, isn't it? The good we want to do, we don't do. That which we hate, we do. What a wretched man that I am. We all have, as we grow in sanctification, this desire to love Jesus, but we also weep and we cry because we know that we don't always love him as we should. I'm thankful that Jesus continues to love us. He continues to ask you. He'll ask you in your study. He'll ask you in your car on the way to a visit. He'll ask you before a lecture. He'll ask you as you walk with him and follow him, do you love me? And when in your sinfulness you're just cranky, critical, upset, weary, tired, want to be somewhere else, may God help us again to hear, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Part of going pastoral is not only asking and basking and remembering this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love, but then this awesome responsibility. Feed my sheep. And the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ need to be fed. And the only thing that feeds God's sheep is the truth of his word. They need the Bible. And that's one thing I'm so, of many things, grateful for Westminster Seminary and for the faithful servants who lecture here, who teach here, who mentor. Because there is such a work of the Holy Spirit with the Word, through the Word, giving us confidence that the Word of God is a miracle. It really is a miracle. The more you study the Bible, it is a miracle inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant, infallible, the authority of God. It teaches us how to think and how to live rather than us thinking what we think it should say. John 17, a few chapters earlier, he's praying for all of his sheep, and what does he pray? Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And Jesus says, Peter and all of you who are going pastoral, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. And what are you going to feed them? Feed them the truth. Feed them God's word. Study it, study it, pray, learn it, and ask for the Holy Spirit to expound it, to apply it, and to point them to Christ, their good shepherd, the chief shepherd, 
and feed them. You and I know, because it's taught here so well at Westminster, this is so counterculture, particularly in our day and age in these perilous times. People don't like to hear things about truth in relativism. In fact, I was just reading a book, and it was talking about even advertisements. Neiman Marcus, that's a clothing store, I take it. And um, they have a thing that says, there are no rules. That's their slogan, there are no rules, Neiman Marcus. Apparently, that must mean you go and dress whatever way you want. I'm like, really? Can you imagine going to Neiman Marcus, taking your clothes off the rack, and proceed out the door past the cashier, not paying, and the security guy comes up to you and says, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I thought there were no rules. <laughs> I think that's like presuppositionalism. I mean, right then, there are rules, and you don't break those rules. Even at Neiman Marcus, even if they say there are no rules, they really believe there are rules. Is that presuppositionalism? <laughs> sort of. Okay. And everybody knows there's truth. Whether they want to say there is no truth, there is truth. Romans 1 teaches us they suppress it every day. And the truth is that Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He's what we need, and He's all we need. His sheep need Him. They need to hear His voice, and they hear His voice. When his under-shepherds pray and with love search the scriptures, study the scriptures, devote the primary of their time and activity to preaching the scriptures and preaching the gospel and feeding the sheep and taking care of them. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Preach Christ. That's one thing also that was so impressed upon me at Westminster Seminary and I know is still being faithful because it's central. When we miss that, we miss the heart and core of it all. Right? John chapter 5, the scriptures testify of me, says Jesus. Can I tell you, some of the, you're headed for some of the greatest times in your life as a pastor. Yes, there's challenging times. Yes, there's great disappointments. But the joys and the kindness of Jesus will far outweigh them all. And some of them, every now and then, God will give you a sign of his goodness. It just happened to me Sunday night. After preaching, I was saying, Dr. John Fesco, thanking him for a great commentary in Ecclesiastes. If you don't have it, get it. Um, We're going through expository preaching through Ecclesiastes. His commentary is like my go-to commentary um, because it is so well-written, faithful to the text, but so easy to understand so guys like me can get it. And... Most of all, so Christ honoring, exalting, and showing us how Ecclesiastes points us to Christ. So, uh, to encourage you also, Dr. Fesco, this guy comes up to me. He's a tire man. He's a hard-working guy. Kind of a no-nonsense Dutch kind of guy. He just wants it straight and don't mess around. He comes up to me and says, Pastor, thank you for always pointing us to Christ. I don't know, whatever crummy things I went through the whole week, that just made the whole week right there. And it's a way to say thank you, Jesus, for allowing me to have this privilege to feed the sheep. And when they get it, and they say things like, thank you for always pointing us to Christ. You couldn't be more spot on in the will of God. Feed my sheep. I want to challenge you. I found this to be very, very helpful. Um, I really have become a, a believer in expository preaching. 
Um, as you go into the ministry, it's not the law of the Medes and the Persians. There's Christian liberty. We also preach uh, Heidelberg Catechism sermons too, and I really believe in that as well. But the idea of taking a book of the Bible, going through it, um, I hope I don't go through it too long where they're just like, I'm tired of this book, but to do it well, to do it thoroughly, and to preach through it, there's so many blessings and benefits. Uh, one of them, for example, it helps you and the congregation to learn the Bible well, to know the Bible, to know it in its context, to see how the gospel just is so wonderfully united through all the books of the Bible. Um, it keeps pastors from our sinful tendencies to preach hobby horses so that every sermon doesn't end on eschatology or why Armageddon's coming or something like that. It also protects us as pastors because it forces you to preach on things you may not want to preach on or a controversial part of the Bible or an obscure text. And then you see they can't say, why is pastor preaching on this? Did he have a bad breakfast or does he have some kind of ax to grind? No, it just falls right in there because now we're coming up to this part of the text. It's fun to watch God's people too anticipate. They, for example, I have uh, some people in Michigan, soon they're going to go down south for the wintertime. And they're like, man, when are you going to get to chapter 12? When do you know when you're going to preach on chapter 12 or whatever chapter? They're, they're looking forward to hearing the next sermon on that part of the Bible, expository preaching. It is uh, a great way to preach and feed the sheep and take care of the lambs. And a little practical thing for pastors, it saves you a ton of time trying to figure out what you're going to preach on next Lord's Day. You already know what you're going to do. You've already got some background work. So I give that to you by way of encouragement or recommendation, expository preaching, obviously, of course, preaching Christ, And one last little thing, it's always helpful for me, Uh, look for good ways to apply the scriptures. Pray, cry out to the Lord, uh, read, find, connect with good servants of the Lord who know how to do this well. Illustrations are incredibly helpful. I remember Dr. Hywell Jones at a conference here years ago quoting another Puritan, and I'm not sure who that Puritan was, but the phrase was, plain speaking and close dealing. Do they still say that in uh, homiletics courses here or so? The idea is, make it as plain as you can so we can grasp it, so that a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old can learn something from the scriptures as you're preaching and teaching. They have the Holy Spirit. And close dealing. Put it right in their lap. Just like Jesus is doing with Simon. Do you love me? Okay, never mind about Peter. Now, what about you? How about you? Plain speaking, close dealing. My grandfather used to say it like this. CJ, don't preach moo-moo sermons. Cover everything, touch nothing. Moo-moos are these dresses, I guess, that ladies wear in Hawaii. They cover everything, touch nothing. I've heard too many sermons like that. Cover everything, touch nothing. Plain speaking, close dealing. I believe it was uh, Spurgeon who said, illustrations are like windows in a building. If the building's too dark, let's enough light in so we can see and understand. If there are too many windows in the building, the structure is weak. Too many illustrations, too many stories. We really don't have a very good, solid structure of exposition and meat from the word. Preach, feed, and take care of his lambs. I want to also encourage you and challenge you with this. 
uh, as Derek mentioned, I have the privilege to catechize about 90 covenant youth every other Wednesday from 3 o'clock to 9 o'clock at night. We now are even incorporating a whole year of church history. That's how far in sanctification we have gone. Um, I cannot tell you enough adequately the joys of teaching children sound doctrine and biblical truths. And by the mercy of God, we have parents saying, I don't know what's going on, but our kids love catechism. And we have parents who make it a priority. We have school buses that drop off kids after school. We have snacks. We have refreshments for them. And I, by the wonderful kindness of the elders... I devote a whole day of preparation for that and teach them the following day. They give me a pulpit supply Sunday evening following because they know how much is involved in doing well at teaching children sound doctrine. Um, third and fourth graders, we have about 20 kids in there. We teach them the Westminster Shorter Catechism for Children. We sing Judy Rogers' song based on the catechism. I'll never forget a young man, non-Christian home. He's learning justification. What is Justification. God forgiving sinners and treating them just as if they've never sinned. Remember that one? This little kid, he's struggling to remember it. He says, says, Paul, what is justification? He says, it's uh, God forgiving sinners and treating them just like they're on vacation. (laughs) Wow, you know, that's that's pretty good. It's kind of like that, the joy of it. Do you know what? You get to know those sheep. You get to know those little lambs. And those lambs of Jesus, they get to know their pastor. And you know their joys. And you know their challenges. You know their disappointments. And as you watch them grow through the world, and you're feeding them, it helps you to preach. It helps you to love them and point them to Christ. And so I want to challenge you. Whatever work it takes, whatever amount of adjustment you have to do, you will never regret getting in the classroom of little children of all ages. It helps you take what you are doing here at Westminster Seminary. It's really kind of the heart. You've got to take what you learned, a systematic theology, and then get it so kids can understand it. Keeps you grounded in good theology. Helps you keep on growing yourself. I highly recommend going pastoral to teach young children. And as you teach them, you'll be blessed and you'll be able to be very effective in your visiting people in the hospitals and discipling new people, all these other things Christ calls you to do. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. There was a, uh, a Christian who went to work and he was partnered up with an unbeliever and they would get into these conversations about church. And this unbeliever one time said to this Christian, you know, why do you go to church every Sunday? You go twice. I mean, does that do you really any good? Why do you do that? And then he challenged him even further. And he said, for example, do you remember what your preacher preached on last Sunday? And the Christian thought about it, tried his best, and he honestly said, you know, I can't remember what he preached on. And the unbeliever said, well, there you have it, see? Why do you do that? Thankfully, God helped that Christian come up with a great answer. And he says, you know, I've been married about 35 years. And that's probably about 38 
thousand or more meals that my wife has cooked for me. But if you were to ask me, what is the menu that I had last month or what was on the month? I couldn't tell you exactly detailed what it is I ate in all those meals, but I do know this. At the time, I needed those meals. And they kept me alive. And often it's that way with God's people, the Lord's sheep. They may not always be able to tell you exactly text and reference when you preach to what you preach, but you will have the joy of hearing them say from time to time, Pastor, I don't know how it is you know what's going on in my life, but that's exactly what I needed. And you know the answer. You don't know what's going on often in their life, but it's because the Bible is the very inspired word of God, and the Holy Spirit works through his word and through Christ's under-shepherds who love Jesus, who love his sheep, and who give their utmost to preaching and feeding and take care of lambs. It's the Holy Spirit. It's Christ who speaks to them and helps them and comforts them and protects them, defends them, and grows them. Brothers, as we go pastoral, be encouraged by the love of Jesus for you. Grow in your love for him. And what was Jesus doing here in John chapter 21 all along while he's asking us? Did he not provide them a wonderful feast? Did the net break? I don't want to be too allegorical, but I take great comfort. I think there's something here in the net not breaking of a reassurance to Peter and to all under-shepherds, no matter how hard it's going to get, no matter how much Satan may try to attack the church, disrupt the gospel preaching, the Lord who's the head of his church will see to it that his church will remain and will preach the gospel to the end of the age. He will always be with us. And when we finish the mission and we cross the shore on the other side, will we not meet Jesus? Who will welcome us to a feast in the newness of our Father's kingdom? When he says, well done, good and faithful servant, share your master's happiness. God be praised. May you be encouraged as you go pastoral. And may Jesus Christ always have the supremacy in all that we do. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the awesome privilege to know your grace, your forgiveness your redemption and your amazing, everlasting love, your covenant faithfulness for us, and even more so, to have the privilege of being called by you to be pastors, to be workers and servants for you who feed your sheep and take care of your lambs. Thank you for Westminster Seminary, for our professors whom you called, whom you love, whom you give your Holy Spirit, may they be encouraged by our due diligence in our studies and our prayers for them and with them. And may we together as your servants grow in grace, grow in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And Lord, we thank you too for people we have never even met, but in your sovereign plan, you will bring us together in your time to grow in Christ, to feed on your word. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.
Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.